Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Thank you and welcome. My name is Tando Lukoko and I'm with the South African Climate Action Network. Studio, although remotely, is uh, Oscar Siwali. Oscar Siwali is my name, as you have rightfully said, and I am the director of Southern African Development and Reconstruction Agency. It's an organization that works in the conflict transformation space. Great to have you. And then Tando with the South African Climate Action Network. I am the National Node Coordinator. The South African Climate Action Network, or SACAN, is a group of environmental organizations that we try to coordinate uh, climate action in South Africa. We also form part of a broader international network called CAN International, which is a network of about 1,300 NGOs uh, around the world who are trying to advocate for climate change and bring about climate action. The name of our show is called Cause and Effect, and really what the purpose for the show is, is to try and connect people and policy, um, and then to also bring in, have a strong focus on particularly environmental conflict. Our conversation today is going to focus on climate change, of which uh, myself as Tano will be focusing on the climate change, and then Oscar is going to be focusing on the conflict side of things. So... You'll forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. I want to say Mfundisi. That's how I've always referred to you. That's fine. And uh, I think everybody will f- figure out that Mfundisi uh, means pastor or reverend. And yeah. as a man who has worked in the church for a long time, that's where our relationship uh, emanates from. And, and it's more of a comfort uh, area to go to. Uh, <laughs> when we, yeah. So, 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 yeah. So feel free. Um, it, there's no, there's no problem. All right. No. Awesome. Just to kick us off, let's let's start with Sadra. Uh, we'll then follow up with 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 Asikan. So what I'm aware of sure. uh, is Sadra does particularly a lot of work in communities around training of mediators. Uh, could you expand yeah. a little bit on on the work that, that that you guys are doing in that space? Yeah. So that's the first part of our work is uh, training community mediators. And uh, that falls under a uh, theme that we call community conflict transformation. And, and our plan there is to train community leaders to transform their conflicts from being violent spaces to being peaceful spaces from being spaces where women are abused and children to being spaces where there is peace. So, so that's the idea of training community leaders. We tend to pick community leaders that are already recognized because it's a waste of time to train somebody who does not have any authority in the community. So we work with community structures to identify people that we can train who carry some sort of authority within the community. And uh, we have trained in about 14 communities at the moment. That's the community aspect of our work. We also train in schools, Tando, where we train uh, young people at school and out of school to be mediators and conflict uh, practitioners. In other words, they start mediating conflicts whilst at school and uh, working to bring about peace within their schools. We train their teachers 
um, also to be knowledgeable about conflict and how it impacts learning at the school and the classroom and that that helps very very well we train women in what we call women in peace building and again i mean women are in leadership positions in the community and so we'll skill them so that they can do a better job so those are areas of training and then in terms of areas of intervention in the communities we intervene when there's communities but we do what i call electoral support where we work with the electoral commission when there are elections in dealing with community conflicts and intervening in conflicts using the structures that we work with in order to intervene in spaces where it's difficult to hold elections so in a nutshell that's basically what we do that sounds very interesting if you don't mind i just wanted to quickly delve a little bit into particularly the the, the school's training um and the focus on yep. women and youth it is yep. a yeah. of great interest to me and i just wanted to find out in terms of what have been some of the positive changes that you've observed as a result of the trainings that you guys have conducted in the schools um, and by extension in the communities yeah. as well that many of these schools are in? I have a video that I often play of a school principal who talks about what his school was like before the Department of Education asked us to intervene. And it was a space where gangs were in charge of the school. They walked in and out as they pleased and as a result, teachers were always scared, and because they lived in fear, traumatized, and were always sick. And so at any given point at that school, you will have anywhere between nine to ten teachers that will be absent. And uh, that gives you about 300 to 400 kids out of the classroom. And so we just create an environment where learning doesn't take place. And when we intervened, it was really about training the teachers to be able to problem solve, to be able to resolve own conflicts in their own space. And once the conflicts amongst teachers and management were dealt with, then they, it was easy to work with the young people and train them as well to be able to resolve conflicts amongst themselves. And changing that school from having anywhere between nine and ten absent teachers to one or two teachers absent uh, on a given day and to having no kid whatsoever on the school ground at any given moment unless it's break time. And for me, that is the level of achievement that I've seen. I remember standing at that particular school uh, outside with one of the senior government officials who had come to visit the school, and he said he cannot believe what he was looking at, where there was not one single child running around in a space where there used to be children all over at a time when they were supposed to be in their classrooms. So, so dealing with conflicts in a school uh, really helps the school to be able to function better. I think, I think that's truly amazing and inspiring. Mm. It's something, I mean, over the years that I've, I've known you, that I've had a chance to work with you, it's one of the exercises that I've always had an interest in precisely because, you know, the youth is the leadership that's coming up. And so yeah, 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 uh, yeah, I, th yeah. I think there's a great deal of value when, when those who are most impacted are in a position to be well-equipped to address the challenges that they face themselves. Um, mm, that, that's mm, something mm, that resonates mm. with me um, quite strongly.
If you will allow me then at this stage, I'll, I'll just touch a bit on what SA Can does more broadly. And uh, and then... And the I'm end, very interested to hear. <laughs> uh, sure. And then and then at the end, I, I know we've also got some questions on climate change, which which we've been sure. wanting an opportunity to be able to discuss. So so afterwards, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I will go into that. Oh, we can go into that. So sure. um, SA Can as a network has been existing in South Africa for some years now. I believe it started in the early 2000s. Um, and it has had several coordinators, several iterations over those years. But as a network, it's a member-based organization. So we comprise of your big NGOs, so your Greenpeace, your WWFs, your organizations like Project 90, organizations which typically work on either environmental issues, climate justice issues, or work specifically on climate change and the different aspects of climate change, considering it's a broad conversation. So one of the benefits of the network is that because it's part of an international network, it also plays very well into what is happening at a global level. So as they can in South Africa specifically, we, as of this year, have been reignited. Over the last two years, we went on a bit of a hiatus. There, there are multiple reasons for why that is, but as an important network which basically acts to coordinate the discourse around climate change in the country, we felt it necessary again, considering the challenges, particularly when we, I mean, for instance, we heard of the day zero drought, which, which impacted Cape Town recently, the, the droughts that are impacting different parts of the country now. It became emergent that, you know what, we need to again reignite SA Canada network and then to strengthen the coordination of the organizations that are already working in that space. And so one of the things that I'm most interested in and is the component that I believe I'm bringing into the space is previously and typically SACAN has been a very policy orientated organization, a technocratic organization of which uh, it's a very critical part of the discourse. However, it, increasingly we're seeing the role for the involvement of grassroots organizations. We're seeing the role of uh, community based organizations to who who have been impacted by these environmental challenges, if you will, to have a more central role that they play in any kind of engagement with either business in the case where it impacts the environment or with government for that matter when it comes to certain policies. One of the things that we're most happy about in terms of the South African climate change discourse is recently, when I say recently, I think it started maybe about 2017, but um, might be speaking on a correction, is, is the promulgation of the climate change bill, um, which basically would provide the legal framework for the country to be able to address now um, and put in uh, the necessary implementation plans to deal with climate change and its impacts cross-sectorally. Um, so, so that's a very interesting and very good piece of emergent news which has come, at least in the, in the discourse. So here's a question that I've been wanting to throw at you for a little while. Now. Yeah, please. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I remember in a, in a previous conversation that we've had, we, we've seen how, uh, I mean, if you can focus again on the day zero. Mm -hmm. One of the emergent things that took place then was resources, natural resources and resource depletion led to a circumstance where areas where gangs are quite popular, that these gangs were now the custodians of many of these natural resources, particularly water in this case. And to an extent, we're now um, managing the level of access to water that people have in their communities. Now, you know, climate change, when, when you look at the latest data, um, it, it's saying that if 
global temperatures increase by one degree in South Africa specifically, you can expect it to double. So um, that would mean if if it if nationally we're going from an average temperature of four degrees, it's going to be eight degrees here in Cape Town or in South Africa specifically, just in, just by example. And so we can expect then that there's going to be further stress on natural resources, particularly water. Mm. Mm. Now, my my concern is how could we best position community leaders, communities to be in a position where, firstly, from a conflict perspective, how can they manage that conflict which which, which may arise or can be expected to arise? And then secondly, what could we do, let's say, in different communities now when we see people from other parts of provinces or countries even moving into a space where there's greater resources than where they come from? Let, let me start with this. You know, with the, the Day Zero saga in Cape Town, Western Cape, and its broadness, one of the, the observations that I made was that Day Zero became a middle-class uh, problem and and yet it was everybody's problem and so you ended up having the middle class worrying more about what needs to be done and teaching the poor how to conserve water and I remember some of the conversations in the different radio stations and there are some radio stations uh, that I love to listen to how the madam was now educating the person who has always only lived on two three liters of water because that person fetches water from a tap um, about a meter or two away from their house and so at this point the the middle class to control of everything. And and this, for me, is the major problem. And this is why the issue of climate change and conflict becomes a point where we desperately need to engage. Because, as you rightfully say, it needs to involve the broader communities. Because if it doesn't, it remains the middle class problem, and if it's a middle class problem, nobody worries about it. I find that if you want to engage communities, you then need to engage with the view of recognizing them as being custodians as well, and they are, rightfully so. And so, if you think back during that time of day zero, in fact, let's say 2017, 2018 drought, I think I actually prefer to call it like that, the 2017, 2018 okay. drought season. If you think about it, I mean, the impact of that drought season was not only around the scarcity of water, which once it was scarce, forced us into racial tensions and racial conflicts and class conflicts. And so our newspapers and radio stations were, were filled with those kind of, you guys are not conserving water on your side and this and that. So that's the immediate spin-off of conflict and possible violence, if you will, that at least was avoided in the 2017-2018 situation because I think uh, before it got to a level where it was at its worst, 
rain started to come in. But if we had seen another, just another month or two without rain, we would have been on each other's throats. And so the tensions were high. Racism got to be at the highest of levels and conflicts of classism became a major issue as we continued to engage on public platforms about who's doing what, about conserving and not conserving water. If this continues, if this, as scientists have said, as you have rightfully said, that climate change will continue to impact us, especially here in Southern Africa, you are likely to then see an increase in those kinds of conflicts between the haves and the have-nots, between the middle class and the poor, and the racial tensions will be more. And I'm just talking South Africa here as a major issue. And if you leave that to continue, you are likely then to see what we have seen now during the COVID period where uh, protests and land grabs become a major issue. Because remember, what climate change does is that it brings with it shortages of food. So we're faced with food insecurity. There's reduction in the yield of crops or maybe even no crop whatsoever. And then, as you have rightfully said, there is rapid increase of migration. And so with that, your communities are basting in sims. And so people then move out to go and grab land. People start protesting, which is what we are seeing now. Because what we are seeing now is people who uh, used to work because of COVID, companies have closed down, those people can't afford. And so there's protests, they're grabbing land. Can you imagine this at a larger scale, which is what will happen? when we're beginning to see the impact of climate change and people are not working and it has become only a middle-class problem. And, and this is, if I, if I be honest with you, this is where I struggle with middle-class because they tend to take these problems to themselves and yet they cannot solve them. Because yeah. they, the people who have a solution uh, for most of these problems are the poor and they are in numbers. And so if you are able to engage, which is what we tend to specialize in, we see community conflicts as something that does not need a specialist to go in, but it needs the people in that particular community to work through. If, um, and, and I'm making an example here in 2017, where the IEC needed to do by-elections in Nyanga, and struggling with the violence and the conflict amongst the community structures and everything. And they asked us as a conflict resolution organization to go in and engage the community leaders and prepare the ground so that elections could take place free and fair. And I love the fact that the IEC in the Western Cape does not believe in elections that are rendered through the barrel of a gun. So you don't have police forcing people to go and vote but you engage people to open up the space for free and fair elections. And so for me, what we then need to do is to take that kind of an approach where communities become part and parcel of the engagement. And if we're going to deal with climate change, we need to take that kind of an approach.
there is going to be a challenge in terms of food security that we can't run away from. The rapid increase in migration is not going to stop. It's going to continue. The coastal communities that are being impacted by the rising sea levels and their need to move, that's going to continue. And so these are things that we need to engage on before they create a big challenge and it becomes conflicts that we cannot deal with. But we can't run away from them. And and this is the beautiful thing about our organization is that our role is to get people to talk. In order for people to talk, we train people within communities so that they can engage with each other to be able to resolve conflicts. I don't know if that's that helps you to be able to see what I'm talking about. Let me pause for a second. It does. And, and I love that last point that you just made about how Sadra, at least one of the things that Sadra tries to do is to get people to talk. Yep. A follow-up question, and I'll expand on this in a little bit, is precisely that, is, is oftentimes we find that, you know, there's this culture that persists of you and I are not, we, we're working in the same space, but because we don't like each other in inverted commas, we, we're not going to want to engage one another. Or I don't like the way in which you engage, you don't like the way that I engage, so we're not going to engage one another, even though we find ourselves working in the same space. And because, you know, there's a solution that we need to be able to find. And I'm of, I'm of the belief personally that, you know, the, the, the cause that we're talking about here, uh, I mean, at, ultimately at its core, I, I believe we're talking about people, we're talking about people's lives. And that far supersedes any individual, let's say, organization's feelings in that respect. I'm saying this because I've, I've come to find that, you know, there, there, there tends to be resistance, dare I say, when it's time to engage, let's say, outside of the middle class. Yep. There has been this, this sense of trepidation to want to engage the conversation of climate change outside of the middle class. And if it is outside of the middle class, it, it always takes a particular kind of form and nature. It makes me wonder, usually that form and nature is in, in the sense of protests, right? And, and we, we see that people are wising up to this. The reiteration of, no, no, climate change is a white people's thing is said like that because of how the conversation takes place, where the conversations take place. And so my question then comes back to there's an organization which pollutes and this organization that's polluting is having a negative impact on the community. But the only way to be able to have a robust solution to this thing is to have direct engagement with the company and with the community so that together we can find the best solution. But both of these parties do not want to come to the table and talk. How would one get around that impasse? I like this question. It, it really illustrates this issue that I'm talking about, that the issue of climate change has become a middle-class problem. Now, yeah. it, to be honest with you, it's not just the climate change issue. Mostly all issues are of concern. We tend to push them away from the poor. And it's not even that the poor lack the capacity. It's just that they have accepted the fact that the middle class have decided that they, they are the custodians of everything. That's the challenge that we face. If you go around to communities where people are not even living in the city, where people are still living in more traditional ways, here in South Africa, as well as 
in any other part of the world where indigenous people are still living and practicing traditional values. The first thing that you will recognize is that they respect Mother Earth. There is amongst indigenous people here in Africa and elsewhere, there is a recognition that Table Mountain, for instance, is something to be loved and respected. And the trees around, they are alive, they are important. The plants live, the land is alive, the water is alive. And so conservation from the point of view of your indigenous people is at a complete different level to your middle class who tend to have a westernized approach when it comes to these issues. The challenge is that, and this is another tension within this space of climate change, because the indigenous people look at the capitalistic approach of the middle class and its lack of respect of Mother Earth that is meant to sustain us for millions of years to come. We found Earth here, and we should be able to leave it here for the generations to come. Now, this is the approach that you will find from the poor, that they tend to love and respect the ground, the water, and everything. What, what has happened is that the middle class has said to the poor and to the indigenous people, your ways of doing things do not matter. They are backwards and they're not going to help us. And what, what those people have done, they've said to the, to the middle class, okay, you, you, take us, you take us through that. We will watch you and see as you ban everything. And so it's an interesting tension here because to be honest with you, if you go backwards, you will realize that when people killed an animal for food, they looked up and they thanked the heavens for providing the animal. They even thanked the animal for giving itself so that it can nourish the humans. No abuse whatsoever. And so the, the level of tension that is growing and what you need to do is very much what we're doing. I think we've come to the realization that having the middle class with the skills does not help the poor communities. Going back to the poor communities, and it's not teaching them, but it is reminding them of the principles that their forefathers held on to. I never go to a community and say to them, I'm going to be teaching them about conflict resolution who the hell am I? Yeah. You know, mediation is a traditional and indigenous method of resolving conflicts amongst people. It's been written up, and now we're getting books from the West, and you could even be tempted to make it a Western civilization approach. And yet, it's a very traditional approach. In fact, it's very African. And so when I teach about conflict resolution and when I teach about mediation, I tend to quote, for instance, the former president of Nigeria, Olusegun Obasanjo, when he talks about how Africans in bonds of brotherhood sit under the baobab tree to resolve their problems. 
And I take that as an introduction in building things and going forward. So, so I think there is a huge need, Tando, to move away from the westernized approach in engaging our communities to, one, recognizing that they've always been there and they've always held these views, but we have tended to move to a level where the West has been the epitome of success where the middle class has been the example that everybody needs to follow. And so we need to go back and we need to say to the indigenous people, we've missed the boat. You carry a lot of knowledge and we want to work from the traditional knowledge, from the indigenous knowledge, and we want to build from there into where we can then assist many others. And so that's the other way around. And I believe that's going to help us even more. If we don't do that, the consequences are dire. So we need to go back and we need to bring people to the debate around what we're talking about. And as much as people might not be educated around climate change, they can see what is going on. And they can recognize that the abuse of the planet and its resources it is what is catapulting us towards the danger that we are now facing. And so they are in full recognition of the fact that this can be prevented. And working together is one of those things that can help to prevent it. And so, so that's how I see it. And, you know, again, I, I'm in very much in agreement with you when, when it's time to do things differently. Particularly the, the recognition by, by indigenous communities to... The level of degradation, the the way in which the natural environment has been treated. I mean, being a closer child myself, I'm critically aware of the different processes that we undertake, you know, within our own customs and rituals that, that take very uh, close cognizance of the environment and our impact on that environment. So, so one of the things that in the space that I'm in now, I'm finding myself asking, how do we then marry the two? How do we marry the knowledge of the West together with this indigenous knowledge? How do we, more importantly for me personally, to, to bring to the fore the experiences, the knowledge of communities, you know, of those individuals? Because you don't necessarily need a PhD to see that my crops were, being, uh, were yielding in, in March and now they're yielding in June, or they were supposed to be yielding at a certain time and now they're not. You know, it, it doesn't take a scientist to see those kinds of changes. It just takes someone who's been, who's in touch with their natural environment. It, it's to be able to, to marry those two things together because what I think, particularly in, in the climate change space is we've had a look at policy. You know, we've, we've engaged with policy at, at multiple levels. We've, we've followed the, let's call it the, the westernized system of, engage with power at these different levels and then once you you know engage with it at this level it should give you this result but that's not oftentimes what we've seen and there's this approach you know to say how can we take Utando who's grown up in Nyanga or take Utando who's grown up in a rural village in Kanduli who's seen that you know they're no longer able to eat now as a result of of the drought or of changes in just the, the climatic environment and take those experiences, put him in an environment where he is talking straight to the minister, is talking to the power, is talking to, is talking in those corridors and saying, look, this has been my experience. You guys have tried, but it, it does not seem to yield. I mean, for me, 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, it, it seems like there's a bit of a conflict there, right? To try and, and, mm, and, and bridge, mm, mm, if mm. you will, that, that gap between those two. The, I mean, there's, there's some interesting things here. One it is the fact that, I mean, the climate itself functions through conflict. I mean, if you, if you think about it, for us to have a thriving environment we we need some lightning and thunder and storms and all of that which is a it looks like a major catastrophic event conflict kind of a thing but then it then yields the results that we want and to a large extent the climate change guys tend to refuse to enter the conflictual space to be able to resolve the tension and the conflict that exists within the climate change discourse. And that is part of what is delaying or slowing down the progress around this. So how do you engage the poor? You have to be honest with the poor. You you don't go to the poor and bamboozle them. And you have to be going to them, one, in acknowledging that something has gone wrong and that some have and some do not have. And we find ourselves in this situation where the boat will sink both. And so we have to work together in deriving methods that will be able to assist us. So you spoke, for instance, about the promulgation of that climate change bill in South Africa. And, and I thought, hmm, how interesting this would be if the poor got to engage with it so that they themselves are able to speak to their government around the impact of climate change even here in this country so that it becomes part and parcel of what they own and are able to speak to. And the index space of conflict transformation, mediation, uh, negotiation skills, what has happened is that the guys who were in the forefront, they came to a point where they recognized that the indigenous methods are actually the better way of dealing with conflict than all these philosophical approaches that everybody is coming up with. And so you'll hear big guys uh, like William Yuri who will talk about the Khoisan of Africa and how they've been resolving conflicts for thousands of years and what we can learn as a people from that. And you can imagine how one can go back to those kind of indigenous people who have seen the climate change over the years, who have been pushed to the margins of society, whose crops have been reduced, whose food is no longer in existence, and be able to work with those kind of communities to find ways and methods to rebuild what we have lost. What we tend to do is to want to leave those people out and come up with new ways, and that's going to be a, a challenge. So, so I am strongly on going back to indigenous methods because I believe that we've lost something way back then. Secondly, I am a critic of Western approaches in terms of not just climate change, but even conflict resolution approaches, because I'm finding that we leave quite a lot behind that has been used over the years, the recognition of everything as having sanctity of life. And not that humans have the upper hand on everything. The recognition that the animals that we share the space with, they're here to contribute a space in this space. They, the trees that we have, the grass that we have, everything is around to contribute in this space. And so, so working together, we should be able to find a way and be able to build a nation that 
that is able to resolve it, its own conflicts. I think if, if I must emphasize here, it's the fact that if we continue in this trajectory where there's going to be no food, where there's going to be no basic needs met because of the climate change, then we're going to see catastrophe in communities. And I continue to see, and I've seen it in the last few weeks, where the poor rise against the army, against the police. I mean, I've seen on TV in areas where the police were running and community youth were chasing because people are hungry. And if we continue in this trajectory, it's really going to be bad. And I was saying this to a few people recently, that we need to be investing more in training community leaders in making sure that our communities are sustainable. We can't continue to pack people like sardines in these communities. We need to be able to equip them. And so I think if, if we continue in this journey, Tando, where we're teaching people how to resolve conflicts, but we're also teaching them not just about climate change, but what does that mean in terms of their livelihood and how they can then continue to live on from where we are at at the moment where they can farm organically where i mean you you would know the various ways where people can actually use the small ground they have to be able to plant and have food and so so those are things that we really need to begin to engage communities on but again, it's engaging from a perspective of how do we work together, not how do I help you? Because uh, the indigenous communities just don't accept that kind of an approach. They work on a relationship building approach, which then is able to help. Just, just on a side note, I don't know why we've waited this long, but uh, I'm glad we're finally having this conversation. A couple things from, from what you've said that have stood out as well. I completely agree with you that communities, it, it, it's how... The idea of how can we do it together, not how can we help you, I think is, is definitely the paradigm that needs to shift. In my experience, particularly in the civil society space, it, it's more of uh, how can I help you? And, and oftentimes it's a perceived, it, it's almost like you look from the outside looking in and you think that my problem is in X. And so you say, how can I help you fix X? And yet the problem is not really X. The problem is Y. Because there isn't this, firstly, this intention to want to come in and engage and talk to be able to find out where exactly the problems exist. And then secondly, there isn't this idea of wanting to work together because it, wanting to work together, I think, would require that we recognize that Tando has a certain skill set that Oscar doesn't have, that Oscar has a skill set that Tando mm. doesn't have. And together then mm. we can complement one another to get to a point where we wouldn't have gotten had we not recognized that. That then brings me full circle to the role of the youth, the role of women, particularly in shaping the type of communities and the livelihoods and uh, building of these sustainable communities. It's very strong. Like I said, I, I love the fact that you have a, a very strong focus on working with women and youth. And it's not it's not a um, tokenist kind of approach. It's, mm. it's, it's actually saying these are leaders. How can we make sure that we empower them enough to be able to shift things in their community, to become the change agents, which we believe them to be? Even even in this vein, in, in the building up of this call it this new these new communities, this new South Africa, do you perceive the role of women and youth to be like that? In Africa and including South Africa, we have not done much to help 
young people to take this continent forward. I think we, we have really failed, which is why in some of the countries you see young people crossing the ocean, dying in the middle of the ocean because they're trying to get to some better, greener pasture. And large part of that is in the political arena. But a large part of it is in the fact that we're not engaging and building towards the future. And I think if I look here in South Africa, our, our young people are very right to begin a direction for themselves. And if we help in building and in equipping their skills, we will see that happen. One of my frustrations in 2015, 2016, working with young people during the Fees Must Fall protests was going to universities, meeting young people who have no negotiation skills, no understanding of conflict resolution approaches, young people who themselves, whilst calling themselves, I mean, black and African in the approach, yet they are westernized in their thinking and are not able to approach things in a conflict resolution manner. How do we find problems? You know, in my language, there is a saying, if things have been broken down through the mouth, they can also be fixed with that same mouth. And what that basically says is let's sit down and let's talk and and you know how many times i had to explain that saying to young people with masters with phds because we have universities that have not treasured our um, african values philosophy and approach and so our young people are at a place where i think they are very ripe i think from university level in communities there's so much that we can do to change them around. We work with a lot of young people, but there are specific young people that I observe and I enjoy seeing how after we've trained them, they go back to change their communities. They transform a violent situation into a place where people can thrive and enjoy themselves. And so there is a need to work a little bit deeper with young people in the different communities and bring them on board onto the discourse because the, the more we leave them outside, the more we are in danger going forward. And so, so I believe strongly, I mean, I love your program with the thinking of focusing on young people around climate change because if, I mean, it is the young people who are going to be the first who are going to lead the, the conflicts that are going to be caused by the climate change when there is no food, when there is no yield of crop, when there is migration, it is those young people who are going to be fighting in the communities. And so working with those, those young people to find solutions to the problems is the best approach. Working with those young people to be them who march to parliament for the climate change bill and make it an important thing for our government to look at. And without that, we're going to find ourselves in serious trouble. The challenge we have at the moment, I mean, even if you look at the townships themselves, you'll find that everybody has sort of taken a back seat because government must lead. 
the middle class must lead. The people who have money must lead. And that's what we need to be able to change. You know, in the olden days, it did not matter how much a person had, but it was the contribution that they are able to make amongst people that actually made them to be a man amongst men, to be recognized amongst other people. And I think we need to get back to those values where it is not the amount of tires on your car that make you to be a man. It is not the house that you live in and where it's located, but it is how you interact with people and how you build towards the future. And we, in the conflict transformation approach, we look at where we are at, we look at where we want to be, and we begin to say to community leaders, how do we get there? What are the things that we need to deal with in order to be? And we have honest, engaging, frustrating conversations, but we put everything on the table to be able to find direction. And I think what we need to do, Tando, you know what we need to do? We need to have a workshop where we pitch climate change together with our training and conflict and let the two themes run together in the training Agreed. and and see how that percolates and see what comes out of that. And And I believe that that could result in something that might just change the face of the earth. You know, I'm completely with you and, and I'm inclined to to take you up on that because I know that, I mean, part part of, you know, where these questions come from is in dealing exactly with people and mindsets which avoid conflict more than wanting to engage mm. it directly. I mean, having been through one of your trainings myself, I learned for myself the value of being in, in those trainings and that, you know, conflict is a natural, it's a natural occurrence. One just needs to know how to be able to engage with it, how to manage it, because only good things can come out on the other side of it if one can give it the time that it needs and the effort that it needs mm. to get onto the other side. So if we could uh, work our way towards landing our conversation, I think uh, for me, that would be something that would that I would want to take forward, how we can work together to to bring those together. Because like I'm saying, I believe that in my being in the space that I'm in now, uh, my interest is greatly in community engagement. However, mm. notwithstanding the need for communities to be able to engage in policy, it's dealing with those policy minds wanting to engage with the community minds to bring about something very different from what it is that we have now and to go into a direction that I think we haven't gone to before. And for that to happen, I think at the very least you and I would need to keep talking and we would need to make it happen somehow, some way. I, I, I don't know when, I don't know how yet, but I believe that it's something that needs to happen sooner rather than later as well. I can say that in the years that I've been working in this space, the methods that have been used, yes, they've been successful, but they've, a lot of them have been unsuccessful precisely because no one really wants to go down to the hard issues. And one thing that I know that you are good at is let's get seated around the table and let's discuss some really hard hitting issues um, so that we can work through them and then get on the other side and then and then build the kind of future that I think we, we know that we can build in this country. I think where, where we need to go is beginning a process where we equip, especially young people, with skills to resolve conflicts as well as knowledge and skills not only to understand 
the catastrophe that we are looking at, but also help them to begin to imagine the future where they are in charge and they are beginning to think about what the causes of climate change are and how to prevent some of those as well as how to navigate because some of those cannot be prevented. We need to be able to navigate around those and to begin to engage. I mean, if you think about it, we, we talk about xenophobic attacks we we seldom talk about the fact that some areas are getting to a point where uh, food scarcity has become a reality and people are moving from point A to point B and that's going to grow. And so how do we then begin to engage in an environment where we can share space and begin to build uh, going forward? There is a need, Tando, to engage the middle class and the poor around this because middle class tend to want to play savior where they yeah. want to go do things for the poor and and that does not help communities and we need to be able to get to a point where communities are empowered to do things for themselves and by themselves agreed and some of these things are very easy and can be done without any need for financial resources so I think let's plan on a workshop um, and let's see if we can take that and get moving with it. Uh, I'm in agreement with you. Tando, I'm going to ask Seko to get in touch with you and the two of you setting a date and then we will identify young people from different communities that are either impacted by climate change or are in having a potential to be impacted by climate change in a more visible way. I mean, everybody is being impacted, but people that would be able to say, yeah, we can see this is happening and, and be able to work uh, with that kind of group. I think, I think we can do that. And, uh, and we can work around that and see where we could find resources to have something like that to take place. But I think the first thing that we need to do is you and Seko identifying two, three communities um, and maybe setting up a date either at the end of this year or beginning of next year. Thank you, Oscar Siwali at Sadra, for joining us on this podcast. A very, very uh, interesting and fruitful conversation looking at uh, the environmental conflict and what it is that people can do, how we can bring people more so into the policy conversation. Just to sign off from the side of South African Climate Action Network, as they can, it was a good podcast on our part, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to take forward the conclusion that we came to to have several workshops and provide the necessary capacity to the communities that were impacted by climate change. That is it from us and that is it from me. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tando. I appreciate this. Uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.